to be combative, not least to further your career, let's say, but also to adopt a stance of ready engagement with the world and to reflect that in your posture. I kind of have an affinity for lobsters. When a lobster loses a fight, it kind of crunches down, so he looks smaller. When he wins a fight, he stretches out, looks bigger, and so he's signaling to other lobsters the tally of his victory. So you think, well, so what? The lobster runs on serotonin, neurochemical. And if the lobster loses, the serotonin levels go down. And if he wins, the serotonin levels go up. And when the serotonin levels go up, he stretches out. And he's a confident lobster. And one of the consequences of that is if a lobster loses a battle and you give him the equivalent of antidepressant, then he stretches out and he'll go fight again. Stand up straight, stand up straight, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Stand up straight, stand up straight, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Stand up straight, 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 stand up straight with your shoulders back. So antidepressants work on lobsters. And you think, well, who cares? It's like, no, 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 you don't get it. We diverged from lobsters from an evolutionary perspective 350 million years ago, and it's the same circuit. It's absolutely unbelievable, and that shows you how deep inside you, how basic, how primordial that circuit is in you. It's sizing other people up and looking at where they fit in the hierarchy. The idea of the hierarchy is at least 350 million years old. And so I read that and I think, well, so much for the idea that human hierarchies are a sociocultural construct. It's like, no, that's wrong. It's not just a little bit wrong, it's unbelievably wrong. It's mind-bogglingly wrong. Lobsters have hierarchies. That's a third of a billion years ago. Okay, that's not a social construction. It's part of being itself. And if you only see a hierarchy as power and tyranny, then you're looking at the world wrong. Stand up straight, stand up straight, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Stand up straight, stand up straight, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Stand up straight, 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 stand up straight with your shoulders back.
hero. One of the things I tend to do is to look at symbolic representations through the lens of evolutionary biology, look, rather than assuming that these representations are mere superstitions that play no functions. Like, we have the idea that there's a deity that's father-like, yeah. so it's a disembodied spirit in some sense that's eternal, that has eternal characteristics. It's like, okay, well, strip it of its metaphysics, if you strip it of its metaphysics, and just look at it as a biological phenomena. It's like, well, what might the idea that there's a, an eternal, eternal spirit, spirit of the Father, spirit of the Father, there's a, an eternal, eternal spirit, spirit of the Father, spirit of the Father, there's a, an eternal, eternal spirit, spirit of the Father, spirit of the Father. Everybody see, make some noise. An eternal, eternal, smash that like. Spirit of the Father. Spirit Let's get ready. Father. What might that be a reflection of? Aye. Well, it's like, well, there's you imitating your father, but your father imitated his father and his father and his father and his father imitated his father. So in some sense, what your father actually imitated was the pattern of fathers across time. And you could think of the transcendent father as the pattern of fathers across time. Yeah. When a child imitates his father in pretend play, when I'm pretending to be my father, I'm observing my father across multiple situations, and then I'm abstracting out the commonalities in behavior and attitude across those situations that make him father, and then I incorporate that and dramatize it in my pretend play. It's unbelievably sophisticated, and so it's what the child is doing in pretend play is coming to embody the disembodied spirit of the father. There's a an eternal, eternal spirit, spirit of the Father, spirit of the Father. There's a, an eternal, eternal spirit, spirit yeah. of the Father, spirit of the Father. This is yeah. an eternal, eternal spirit, spirit of the Father, spirit of the Father. This yeah. a, an eternal, eternal spirit, right. spirit of the Father, spirit of the Father. Yeah, come on. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I should sure, sure. Well, it's a judge, that's for sure. It's a judge. Even when you interact with the the hierarchy of, of men who are currently alive, something can be abstracted out of that. It's like the patriarchal spirit. And if you don't think that's judging you, you are not thinking. It's absolutely judging you. Ow. That's what we're doing here. There's a, an eternal, eternal spirit. Yeah. Spirit of the Father. Spirit of the Father. This stuff. An eternal, eternal spirit. Spirit of the Father. Spirit of the Father. There's a, an eternal, eternal spirit. Spirit of the Father. Spirit of the Father. There's a, an eternal, eternal spirit. Spirit of the Father. Spirit of the Father. Yeah, what's up? Yeah, you guys are noisy today. Bless. Yo, bless up. I can I can I can tell you're excited. I can tell you're excited for this one. Yo, you you better chill out soon though. We've got the good Dr. Jordan B. Peterson stepping up here. It's gonna be biblical. I'm telling you. 
I know, I know. Yo! Woo! Yeah, that's what's up. Hey, yo, welcome to the MAZ, brothers and sisters. Do me a favor, smash that like. Take this link, post it in a Discord. Post it on Twitter, post it on YouTube, whatever it is. Fire up that burner account. Fire up the other burner account. Let's get Susan to let the people in. We're getting biblical tonight. Yeah, we are. Yeah, that's right. It's the long-awaited, that long-awaited live scoring of the Jordan B. Peterson biblical sessions. It's them Bible sessions. You know what I mean? Uh, that's what it is. It's the Bible series part three. We did part one and part two on stream like a long time ago. You know, a long time ago. We did. Yeah, yeah. Chill, chill, chill. Come on, guys. Come on, come on. I mean, I know you're excited. I know you're excited. But yeah, like long before these meaning streams, maybe if you knew around here, you missed this. Maybe you did. I probably should have announced this in advance so you could have gone back and listened to the first two. But you know me. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a fly by the seat you pants type of a guy. And uh, I set this whole situation up earlier this afternoon, you know, and uh, got it cracking. Pretty excited about doing this presentation. You know, what we got, do, what we got going on is basically uh, Jordan B. Peterson did this Bible lecture series, breaking down the Bible. He's breaking it down. What's all that mean? What is all that chatting about in this mad old book of great import that has been very influential over the years? You know, what, what is all this chatting about? What? What is all the chatting about, by Jove? And, uh, you know, <laughs> calm down. Come on. Uh, yeah, we're going in on part three tonight. If you didn't hear part one or two, it's all right. It's a, it's a bit of a choose your own adventure, the Bible. You know what I mean? You can, you can drop in anywhere and it's dope. You know what I mean? So we're doing free tonight. And uh, what's free all about? God and the hierarchy of authority. God and the hierarchy of authority, Cindy Bailey. And we're doing this for you. We're doing this especially for you, Cindy Bailey, because it's your birthday and we love you. That's right. Make some noise for Cindy Bailey in the chat, MAC. Yeah, that's right, everybody. That's right. Yeah. Uh, oh, and Joshua and Ramirez got married. <laughs> Come on, make some noise. Wow. Wow, that's right. Yo, congratulations. I know, right? Chill, chill. Everyone chill a little bit. Chill a little bit. All right, cool. So we're going to get in on this real quick. I need everyone to smash that like. Uh, we've got to get the spaceship fill up, uh, full. We've got to get the spaceship full so we can blast off with the good doctor and get biblical. You know what I mean? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get Jordan Peterson in here talking about what the Bible is all chatting about. And, you know, I'm just going to play some music. You know, and it's going to be a vibe. It's going to be a vibe. It's going to be one of those, where else on earth do we get entertainment like this? Nowhere, that's where. Type vibes, you know? So that's what's up. Happy birthday, Cindy. Everyone's saying happy birthday to Cindy out there. I mean, you can hear him. Way. That's right. Smash that like. Uh, RB Dugan says, congrats, MAZ. I know, right? It's just celebrations all around. Mike Betters is here, says happy birthday. Wave friends, Cindy. Ain't that, ain't that beautiful? Happy birthday, Cindy. Hey, let's get an international uh, high five cracking. You know, in honor of Cindy Bailey's birthday. We will direct our energies at Cindy Bailey and her birthday. Uh, let's do that. And Joshua Ramirez and his beautiful marriage. Let's wish uh, a long, happy life for all of them, all of our friends. Yeah. 
long and happy life for all of our friends. All right, everyone, calm down, calm down. All right, calm down. Calm down, you look. All right, that's right. All right, you know what to do? Three, two, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's that feel? Does that feel good? Yeah. I know, I know. I know. What a time to be alive, eh? What a time to be alive. Shouts out to Slim Jesus, of course. You know, shouts out to Slim, Slim Jesus all day long. Shouts out to Chicago. Shouts out to FaZe. We got FaZe in the chat. Man. We got a lot of beautiful people in here. Smash that leg, baby. Come on. Come on. I reckon uh, one more song before we get into this. How's that sound? Let's get a few more people in here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I agree. I gotta say, by the way, you know what I mean? Playing to a packed out stadium, it's pretty sweet. You don't have to play as much music. You ain't gotta worry about background music, you know, because uh, everyone's so excited. You know what I mean? Uh, anyway, what, what? Hey, Cindy Bailey. You can choose a song. What uh, Jordan Peterson songs you want to hear right now? Huh? By the way, if you're wondering whose internet it is, if things aren't perfect, it's yours. Our internet's great right now. Yeah, what up, Liam Davis? Streaming, that's why I'm working. Making websites. Hey, good for you, good for you. Proud of you, baby. What up, Roman Dubzanski? In the house. In the house. Yeah, we're getting ready to go in, baby. It's going to be epic. Seeing if Cindy Betty wants to pick a tune. Give her another couple of seconds before uh, we do it ourselves. You know? Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> Alright, let's get it. We've got the Coincident Experiment in here. Shouts out to the Coincident Experiment. Just as everybody locked in, baby, in this beautiful part of the cosmos called the MAZ. Let's say you want to sort out your room and beautify it. Oh. And let's say that all you have is just a little room, like you're not rich, but you've got your damn room and you've got the space right in front of you that's a part of the, the cosmos. cosmos that you can come to grips with. Have some taste, and that doesn't mean you have to have money. It doesn't, because you can be garish. 
with money. You can be tasteful with nothing. You have to be creative in order to do that. And so then to beautify your room means that you also have to develop your capacity to be creative. And so then you can make your room shine. Find your damn room. You got the space right in front of you. Space right in front of you. Space right in front of you. Find your damn room. This space right in front of you. It's a part of the cosmos that you can go to grips with. Find your damn room. You got this space right in front of you. Space right in front of you. Space right in front of you. Find your damn room. You got this space right in front of you. It's a part of the cosmos that you can go to grips with. But then what will happen is that if your family isn't together, they will interfere with that. When you start building this little microcosm of perfection, it'll evoke all the pathologies of everyone in your household. They'll wonder what the hell you're up to in there, and they won't necessarily be happy because if they're in a lowly place, the higher you move out of that the more the place they're in looks bad and you might say well what they should do is celebrate your victory over chaos and evil but that isn't what will happen what will happen instead is that they will attempt to pull you back down and so what that means is that if you organize your room then you're going to have to confront the devils in your house and that's often a terrifying thing because some of those devils have lineages that go back many many generations and god only knows what you have to struggle with in order to overcome that ready to go in on this biblical thing. Almost ready to go in on this biblical thing. Who's ready for a biblical thing? Huh? Are you ready? Is everything all nice and shiny? Can everyone hear everything properly? Is the sound good? Is the visual good? Sounds good. Quentin Experiment says, Utopia! What a coincidence experiment. Yeah, what up, Sergio Tej says, thank you, JBP, for uh, bringing me to ATD, who introduced me to so many more. Hey, what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. We're going to have one more song before we go in. This one's for Cindy Bailey in honor of her birthday. Yeah. Yeah. Go into your imagination. Woo. Woo. Go into your imagination. If you got weird internet, don't blame me. Mine's great. Try rebooting your shit or switching uh, to the Wi-Fi. I don't know. I don't know. Make your shit good. Come on. 
I was at the Museum of Art in New York. I was in this amazing room, you know, it had all these priceless paintings from the late Renaissance hanging in it. Each painting worth, who knows, a billion dollars maybe. They're priceless paintings. And the room was, it's a shrine, and it was full of people from all over the world who were looking at these paintings. You think, well, what the hell are these people doing coming to this room looking at these paintings? What are they up to? What are they doing? They don't know what that means. Like, why are they looking at that painting? Why is it in this room? Why does it cost a billion dollars? Why is that painting worth so much? And the answer to that is, well, we don't really know. They're sacred objects in some sense. And we gaze at them in ignorance and wonder. And the reason for that is that the unknown shines through the mattice and in partially articulated form. Well, that's the role of art. And that's the role of artists. Yeah. Well, that's the role of art. And that's the role of artists. So real artists are contending with the unknown, right? And they're possessed by it. They have a personality trait, openness, that makes them do that. They can't even help it. Makes them do that. They can't even help it. Yeah, happy birthday, Cindy Bay, and shouts out to everybody locked in. This is the Meaning Stream, and we got a special show tonight. We got one more like to get. We need one more like, and then we can do it. <laughs> and we can bring the good doctor to the stage and get this biblical situation cracking, baby. All right, there you go. Make some noise for yourselves, brothers and sisters. Make some noise for yourselves. Very proud of you and your noise-making abilities today. Really nailed it. And, uh, yeah, without further ado, baby, let's get it. I'm really looking forward to this lecture. Not like I wasn't looking forward to the other ones, but... The, the stories that I want to cover tonight, I, one of the things that just absolutely staggers me about them, especially the story of Cain and Abel, which I hope to get to, is, like, it's so short, it's unbelievable. It's like 10, 11 lines. There's nothing to it at all. And I've found that it's essentially inexhaustible in its capacity to reveal meaning. And I don't exactly know what to make of that. I mean, I, do, I think, you know, because I said I was going to take as rational an approach to this issue as I possibly could. I think it has something to do with this intense process of condensation across very long periods of time. That's the simplest explanation, but I'll tell you, the information in there is so densely packed that it really is, it's really, it's not that easy to come up with an explanation for that. Not one that I find fully compelling. I mean, I do think that the really old stories, and, and we've been covering the really archaic stories in the Bible so far, I think that one of the things that you can be virtually certain about is that everything about them that was memorable was remembered, right? And so in some sense, and this is kind of like the idea of Richard Dawkins' ideas of memes, which is often why I thought that Richard Dawkins, if he was a little bit more uh, mystically inclined, he would become Carl Jung, because there are theories that are unbelievably similar. The similar of meme and the similar of uh, the idea of archetype of the collective unconscious are very, very similar ideas, except the Jungian idea is far more profound in, in my estimation. Well, it, it just is. It's, it's, he thought it through so much better, you know. Um, 
because Dawkins tended to think of meme as, as sort of like a mind worm, you know, something that would infest a mind and maybe multiple minds, but he never really took, I don't think he really ever took the idea with the seriousness it deserved. And I did uh, hear him actually make a joke with Sam Harris the last time they talked about the fact that, that uh, there was some possibility that the, the, the pr production of memes, say religious memes, could alter evolutionary history. And they both avoided that topic instantly. They had a big laugh about it and then decided they weren't going to go down that road. And so that wasn't very, that was quite interesting to me. But um, these, these, the, 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 the density of these stories, I do really think still is a, is a mystery. It's, it certainly has something to do with their absolute their, in, their impossibility to be forgotten. You know, and that's actually something that be t could be tested empirically. I don't know if anybody has ever done that, because you could tell naive people two stories even equal length, right? One that had an archetypal theme and the other that didn't, and then wait three months and see which ones people remembered better. It would be, be a relatively straightforward thing to test. I haven't tested it, but maybe I will at some point. But anyways, that's all to say that I'm very um, excited about this lecture because get an opportunity to go over the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Cain and Abel, and I hope we manage both of those today, and maybe we'll get to the story of Noah and the Tower of Babel as well, but I wouldn't count on it. Not at the rate we've been, <laughs> not at the rate we've been progressing, but that's okay. That's, that's no problem. It's, there's no sense rushing this. All right, so we're going to go, before we go that, before we do that, I want to finish my discussion of the idea of the psychological significance of the idea of God, and I've been thinking about this a lot more you know, because, of course, this lecture series gives me the opportunity and the necessity to continue to think. And, you know, it, it certainly is the case. So the, the hypothesis that I've been developing with the Trinitarian idea is something like that the Trinitarian idea is the earliest emergence in image of the idea that there has to be an underlying cognitive structure that gives rise to consciousness as well as consciousness itself. And so what I was suggesting was that the idea of God the Father is something akin to the idea of the a priori structure that, that gives rise to consciousness, that's, that's an inbuilt part of us, so that's our structure. You could think about that as something that's been produced over a vast evolutionary time span. And I don't think that's completely out of keeping with the, with, the, uh, with the ideas that are laid forth in Genesis 1, at least if you think about them from a metaphorical perspective. And it's hard to read them literally because I don't know what, you know, there's an emphasis on day and night, but the idea of day and night as as 24-hour diurnal, you know, uh, daytime and nighttime uh, interchanges that are based on the clock, on the earthly clock seems to be a bit absurd when you first start to think about the construction of the cosmos. So, it just doesn't seem to me that a li literal interpretation is appropriate. And, I mean, it's another thing that you might not know, but you know, many of the early church fathers, one of them, Origen in, in particular, stated very clearly, this was in 300 AD, that the, these ancient stories were to be taken as, as, as wise metaphors and not to be taken literally. Like the idea that the people who established Christianity, for example, were all the sorts of people who were biblical literalists is just absolutely historically wrong. I mean, some of them were, and some of them still are. That's not the point. Many of them weren't, and it's not like people who lived 2,000 years ago were stupid by any stretch of the imagination. And so they were perfectly capable of understanding what, const you know, what constituted something approximating a metaphor, and also knew that fiction, in some sense, considered as an abstraction, could tell you truths that, that nonfiction wasn't able, wasn't able to get at, unless you think that fiction is only for entertainment. And I think that's a very, that's a, that's a big mistake, too, if you think that. So, all right, so here we go. So, yes, yeah, so with regards to the idea of, of God the Father, so the idea is that, 
in order to make sense out of the world, you have to have an a priori cognitive structure. And that was something that Immanuel Kant, as I, as I said last time, um, uh, put forward as an argument against the idea that all of the information that we uh, acquire during our lifetime is a consequence of incoming sense data. And the reason that Kant objected to that, and he was absolutely right about this, is that you can't make sense of sense data without an a priori structure. You can't extract from sense data the structure that enables you to make sense of sense data. It's not possible. And that's really been demonstrated, I would say, beyond a shadow of a doubt since the 1960s. And the best demonstration of that was actually the initial failure of artificial intelligence. Because when the AI people started promising that we would have fully functional and autonomous robots and, and artificial intelligence back in the 1960s, um, what they didn't understand and what stalled them terribly until about the early 1990s was that it was almost that the problem of perception was a much deeper problem than anybody ever recognized. Because like when you look out the world, you just see, well, look, there's objects out there. And by the way, you don't see objects, you see tools. Just so you know, in the neurobiology, that's quite clear. You don't see objects and infer utility. You see useful things and infer objects. So it's actually the reverse of what people generally think. But the point is, is that regardless of whether you see objects or useful things, when you look at the world, you just see it and you think, well, seeing is easy because there the things are and all you have to do is like, you know, turn your head and they appear. And that's just so wrong that it's, that it's almost impossible to overstate. Like the, the problem of perception is staggeringly difficult. And one of the primary reasons that we still don't really have autonomous robots, although we're a lot closer to it than we were in the 1960s, is because it turned out that you actually have to have in a body, you have to have a body before you can think. And even more importantly, you have to have a body before you can see, because the act of seeing is actually the act of mapping the patterns of the world onto the patterns of the body. It's not things are out there, you see them, then you think about them, then you evaluate them, then you decide to act on them, and then you act. I mean, that, that you could call that a folk idea of, of psychological processing or perception. It's not, that is not how it works. Like your eyes, for example, map, one of the things they do is map right onto your spinal cord, for example. They map right onto your emotional system. So it's actually possible, for example, for people to be blind and still be able to detect facial expressions which is to say you can, for someone who's cortically blind, so they've had their visual cortex destroyed often by a stroke, they'll tell you that they can't see anything, but they can guess which hand you put up if you ask them to, and if you flash them pictures of angry or fearful faces, they show skin conductance responses to the more emotion-laden faces, and it's because, imagine that the world is made out of patterns, which it is, then imagine that those patterns are transmitted to you electromagnetically that through light, and then imagine that the pattern is duplicated on the retina, and then that pattern is propagated along the optic nerve, and then the pattern is distributed throughout your brain, and some of that pattern makes up what you call conscious vision, but other parts of it just activate your body. And so, for example, when I look at this, when I look at this, uh, this uh, whatever, it, whatever it is, <laughs> bottle, that's the word, <laughs> You know, when I look at it, especially with intent in mind, as soon as I look at it, the pattern of the, of the bottle activates the gripping mechanism of my hand, and part of the action of or the, the active perception is to adjust my bodily posture, including my hand grip, to be of the optimal size to pick that up. And it, it's not that I see the bottle and then think about to how to move my hand. That's too slow. It's that. I use my motor, motor cortex to perceive the bottle, and that's actually somewhat independent of actually seeing the bottle as a conscious experience. Experience. So, anyways, uh, 
the, the, re the reason that I'm telling you that all of that, and, and, and there's much more about that that can be told. Rodney Brooks, he's someone to know about. He's a robotics engineer who worked in the 1990s, and he invented the Roomba, um, among many other things. So he's a real genius, that guy. And uh, Brooks was one of those people to really point out that uh, to have to be able to have a, a, a machine that perceived well enough to work in the world, that you had to give it a body and that the perception would actually be built from the body up rather than from the abstract cognitive perceptions down. And so, well, and that, that turned out to be the case. And Brooks built all sorts of weird little machines in the 1990s that didn't even really have any central brain, but they could do things like run away from light. And so they could perceive light, but their perception was the act of running away from light. And so perception, perception is very, very, very tightly tied to action in ways that people don't normally perceive. Anyways, that's all to say that you cannot perceive the world without being embodied. And, you know, you're embodied in a manner that's taken you roughly three and a half billion years to pull off, right? There's been a lot of death as a prerequisite to the embodied form that you take. And so it's taken all that trial and error to produce something like you that can interact with the complexity of the world well enough to last the relatively paltry 80 or so years that you can last. And so I think about that as, and this may be wrong, but I think it's a useful, at least it's a useful uh, hypothesis. I think the idea of God the Father is something like the birth of the idea that there has to be an internal structure that out of which consciousness itself arises that gives form to things. And well, and, and if that's the case, and perhaps it's not, but if it's the case, it's certainly reflection. It's a reflection of the kind of factual truth that I've been describing now. And then, uh, like I also mentioned, that I kind of see the, the idea of both the Holy Spirit and also of Christ, and most specifically of Christ in, in the form of the Word. As the active consciousness that that structure produces and uses, not only to, to formulate the world, because we formulate the world, at least the world that we experience, we formulate, but also to change and modify that world, because there's absolutely no doubt that we do that, partly with our bodies, which are optimally evolved to do that, which is why we have hands, unlike dolphins that have you know, very large brains like us, but can't really change the world. We're really adapted and evolved to change the world, and the world and our speech is really a, an extension of our ability to use our hands. So the speech systems that we use are you know, very well-developed motor, uh, a more, very well-developed motor skill, and generally speaking, your your dominant linguistic hemisphere is the same as your dominant hand, and people talk with their hands, like me, as you may have noticed, and we use sign language, and there's a tight relationship between the use of the hand and the use of language, and that's partly because uh, language is a productive force, and the hand is part of, the, part of what changes the world. And so all those things are tied together in a very, very complex way with this a priori structure and also with the embodied structure. And I also think that's part of the reason why classical Christianity puts such an emphasis not only on the divinity of the spirit, but also on the divinity of the body, which is a harder thing to grapple with. You know, it's, it's easier for people to think if you think in religious terms at all, that you have some sort of transcendent spirit that's somehow detached from the body that might have some life after death, something like that. But the Christian Christianity in particular really insists on the divinity of the body. So the idea is that there's an underlying structure. It's got this quasi-patriarchal nature, partly because it's 
for complex reasons, but partly because it's a reflection of the social structure as well as other things, and then that uses consciousness in the form particularly of language, but most particularly in the form of truthful language in order to produce the world in a manner that's good. And I think that's a walloping, powerful, powerful idea, especially the relationship between the idea that it's truthful speech that gives rise to the good, because that's a really fundamental moral claim. And I think that's a tough one to beat, man, because one of the things I've really noticed is, and, and this and it isn't just me, that's for sure, is that, you know, there's a lot of tragedy in life. There's no doubt about that. And lots of people that I see, for example, in my clinical practice are laid low by the tragedy of life. But I also see very, very frequently that people get tangled up in deceit, in webs of deceit that are often multiple generations long. And that just takes them out, you know. And so, that, so deceit can produce extraordinary levels of suffering that last for very, very long periods of time. And that's really a clinical truism, you know, because Freud, of course, identified one of the problems that contributed to the suffering we might associate with mental illness with repression, which is kind of like a lie of omission. That's a perfectly reasonable way to think about it. And Jung stated straight out that there was no difference between the psychotherapeutic, the curative psychotherapeutic effort and supreme moral effort, including truth. That, those were the same thing as far as he was concerned. And Carl Rogers, another great clinician who was at one point a Christian missionary before he became um, more, more, more strictly scientific, he believed that it was in truthful dialogue that, that, that uh, clinical transformation took place. And, you know, it, it, and of course, one of the prerequisites for genuine transformation in the clinical setting is that the therapist tells the truth and the client tells the truth because otherwise how in the world do you know what's going on? How can you solve a problem when you don't even know what the problem is? And you don't know what the problem is unless the person tells you the truth. That's something really to think about in light of your own relationships because you know if you don't tell the people around you the truth then they don't know who you are. And maybe that's a good thing you know, because well seriously people have reasons to lie right I mean that aren't trivial but it's really worth knowing that you can't even get your hands on the problem unless you formulate it truthfully. And if you can't get your hands on the problem, the probability that you're going to solve it is, is just so low. And so then I've been thinking about as well, the, this, this, and, and this idea has become more credible to me the, the longer I developed it, the, the, the longer I thought about it. You know, the idea that there's, I'll, I'll, I'll go back, it's partly the idea that friend of mine, business partner, and a guy that I've written scientific papers with, very smart guy, took me to task, and I think I told you this a little bit about using the term dominance hierarchy, which might be fine for like chimpanzees and for lobsters and, and for creatures like that, but not, not, for, not, not for chimpanzees even so much. And, and he said something very interesting. He thought that the idea of dominance hierarchy was actually a projection of a early 20th century quasi-Marxist hypothesis onto the animal kingdom that was being observed and the notion that the hierarchical structure that you see that characterizes say mating hierarchies in, in chimps for example, the idea that that was predicated on power was actually a projection of a kind of political ideology and I thought that really bugged me for a long time when he said that because like, because I'd really been used to using the term dominance hierarchy and I thought, he, he told me all that, I thought, Ugh, that's so annoying. It's so annoying because it might be right and, and it took me months to think about it. And then I, and then I was also reading Franz de Waal at the same time and he's a primatologist and also 
Jack Pinksepp, who's a brilliant, brilliant affective neuroscientist who unfortunately just died. He wrote a great book called Affective Neuroscience. And for rats to play, they have to play fair or they won't play with each other. That's, that's a staggering discovery, right? Because anything that helps uh, instantiate the, uh, the emergence of ethical behavior in animals and that associates it with an evolutionary process, which is essentially what, what, what Pengsep was doing, gives credence to the notion that the ethics that guide us are not mere sociological epiphenomenal constructs. They're deep, deeply rooted. If rats, and they're rats for God's sake, you can't trust them, and they still play fair, you know. And the wall noticed that the chimp troops that he studied like the, it, wasn't, it wasn't the barbaric, barbaric chimp that ruled with an iron fist that was the successful ruler because he kept getting torn to shreds by, his, by the compatriots that he ignored and stomped on. As soon as he showed some weakness, they'd just tear him into pieces. The chimp leaders that were stable, you know, that had a stable kingdom, let's say, were very reciprocal in terms of their interactions with their friends. And chimps have friends, and they, ask, they actually last for a very long time, chimp friendships. And they were also very um, reciprocal in their inter interactions with the females and with the infants. And I, I thought, that's, that's a, friends to Wall is a very smart guy. And I thought that was also foundational science, because it's really something to note that the attributes that give rise to dominance in a male dominance hierarchy, sort of use that word, let's call it authority, that might be better, or even shudder competence, which I think is a better way of thinking about it, is that that's not predicated purely on anything that's, that's, that's as simple as brute power. And I think too, you know, I think as well that the idea, and this is a deeply devious and dangerous political idea in my estimation, the idea that male dominance hierarchies Story. Male hierarchies are fundamentally predicated on power in a in a law-abiding in a law-abiding society. I think is I think all you have to do is think about that for like a month, say, which <laughs> isn't that long, to understand how absurd that is. Because most people who are in positions of authority, let's say, are just as hemmed in by ethical responsibility, or even more so than people at the other levels of the of the hierarchy. And we know this even in the managerial literature, because we know, generally speaking, that managers are more stressed by their subordinates than the subordinates are stressed by their managers. And that's not surprising. You, know, you want to be responsible for like 200 people? You really want that? That's hard work, man. And I mean, I know it's a pain to have a boss because you have to care about what the boss thinks. And maybe the person is arbitrary, in which case they're not going to be particularly successful. But it's no joke to be responsible for 200 people. And you have to behave very carefully when you're in a position of responsibility and authority like that because you will get called out if you make mistakes constantly. So it's not like you're, it's not like because you have a position that's higher up in the hierarchy that you're less constrained by ethical necessity. Now, if you're a psychopath, well, that's a whole different story, but psychopaths have to move pretty rapidly from hierarchy to hierarchy, right? Because they get found out quite quickly. And as soon as their reputation is shattered, then they can't get away with their shenanigans anymore. So, okay, so all of this is to say that's something very interesting about the pattern of behavior. So imagine that, imagine that sexual selection is working something like this, and, and, and we know that sexual selection is a very, 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 very powerful biological force, even though biologists ignored it for almost 100 years after Charles Darwin originally wrote about it, thinking mostly about natural selection. They didn't like the idea of sexual selection because it tended to introduce the notion of mind into the process of evolution because it, it deals with choice. No, but So imagine, on the one hand, that you have a male hierarchy, 
We know that the men at the top of the hierarchy are much more likely to be reproductively successful than the men at the bottom. That's particularly true of men. So you have twice as many female ancestors as you have male ancestors. Not going to do the math, but, and I know it doesn't sound plausible, but it, you can look it up and figure it out. It's, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable fact that it actually happens to be true. So there's twice as, you have twice as many female ancestors because females are twice as likely, on average, to leave offspring as men. Now what happens is, any man, man who does reproduce tends to reproduce more than once, but a bunch of them reproduce zero. Whereas, so it would be, the average man who reproduces has two children, and the average man who doesn't reproduce has zero, obviously, and the average woman who reproduces has one child. So that means that there's twice as many females in your line as there is males. So that, that's a big deal. And, and so imagine that it works something like this. So the men elect the, the, the competent men who are admired and who are, and who are uh, I can't say dominant, who are, who are given positions of authority and respect. Let's put it that way. And it's like an election. Now, it could be an actual democratic election, but it's at least an election of consensus, or it's at least an election of, well, we're not going to kill him for now, which is also a form of election, right? It's a form of tolerance, you know? So, so, and then what happens is the women, for their part, peel from the top of the male hierarchy. And so you've got two factors that are driving human sexual selection across vast stretches of evolutionary time. One is the election of men by men to positions where they're much more likely to reproduce. And the second is the tendency of women to peel off the top of male dominance hierarchies, which is extraordinarily well established cross-culturally. Even if you flatten out the socioeconomic uh, disparity, say, between men and women, like they've done in Scandinavia, you don't, you don't uh, uh, reduce the tendency of women to peel off the top of the male hierarchy by much. And why, why would you? I mean, women are smart. Why in the world wouldn't they go for, for, why wouldn't they strive to make relationships with men who are relatively successful? And why wouldn't they let the men themselves define why that, how that constitutes success? It makes sense. Like, if you want to figure out who the best man is, why not let the men compete and let the, ma the man who wins, whatever the competition is, is the best man by definition? How else would you define it? So, okay, so why am I telling you all that? Well, the reason is, is because it seems to me that there's, this comp there's been this complex interplay across human evolution between the election of the male dominance hierarchy and sexual success. And that's a big deal if it's true. It could be, because what would happen, you see, is that as men evolved, they would evolve to be better and better at climbing up the male hierarchy, because the ones who weren't good at that wouldn't reproduce. So obviously that's going to happen. But then it wouldn't just be a hierarchy, because there's a whole bunch of different hierarchies. And so then you might say, well, are there commonalities across hierarchies? That's a reasonable thing to propose. I mean, they're not completely opposed to one another, at least. If you're more successful, relatively more successful in one hierarchy, then you're more probable, it's more probable that you'll be successful in another. And that's actually a really good definition of general intelligence or IQ. And that's actually one of the things that women select men for. Now, men also select women for that, but the selection pressure is even higher from women to men. And general IQ is one of the things that propels you up across dominance hierarchies because it's a general problem-solving mechanism. And the other thing that seems to do that to some degree is conscientiousness. And there's also some evidence that women prefer conscientious men. 
So, and, and of course, why wouldn't they? Because you can trust them and, 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 and they work. And so those are both good things. So then you think, okay, so men have adapted to start to climb the male dominance hierarchy, but it's the set of all possible hierarchies that they're adapted to climb. And so then you think there's, there's a set of attributes that can be acted at. Um, yeah. So that rather sucks. Um, and I'm wondering what to do about that since the whole thing somewhat relies on being one piece. And uh, I've lost the connection of the whole thing. Well, I guess we'll have to abandon it. I guess we're going to have to abandon that and try it again another day. Uh, because... Yeah, the technology failed us. By Joe, the technology failed us. Um, so that sucks. Anyway, shout out to you guys who are still here. Shout out to everyone that is still here. And uh, yeah, apologies for that. It was going really nicely. It was going really nicely. And, uh, and then was destroyed. And was destroyed. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens in life, I guess. Uh, it was going really well, though, so that's a shame, because I was enjoying it, and uh, it felt like it was going to be good. But never mind. Uh, we'll have to try it again another, another day in the future. Uh, and I will have to work out a way of... Uh, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Can we send internet via carrier pigeons? Like, what do we do? What do we do, brothers and sisters? What do we do? Uh, I'm just basically just going to have to... Uh, you know, get uh, some carrier pigeons to, like, deliver everybody a little piece of paper or something. I don't know. What's up, wifey? How you doing? I don't know. You're just sad. Were you enjoying that? I know. We were all enjoying it. We were all enjoying that. It was lovely. And, uh, and uh, now it's not. How sad. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. So, what's the G double O D in that, huh? Walking Mall Poet says, back, good. We know the idea works and can master it for next time. Well, we already knew the idea worked since I've, this is the third one. <laughs> but I suppose, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing, you know, what I, I don't know this is interesting to you guys or not but uh, the way I've got this working is I've got uh, on one computer over here I do the noise and the other computer streams that's how you can have uh, you know lovely visual aspects and things of that nature if you remember the early days of the stream things were very very laggy you know very very laggy uh, but now um, yeah so now I've, I'm running the music off this one and that goes into the other but then getting the visual, the visual goes into the one over here. So getting the visual going to this one at the same time in the music and them lining up and, and the mouth working at the same time and all that was actually very complicated and confusing, but I managed to get it going earlier. Uh, but it was working across uh, the internet, essentially. Well, it was, so um, relying on that isn't good, given that I can't rely on my internet, it seems. Uh, I'll have to work out a hardwired way of doing it. There are hardwired ways of doing it. You can buy things. 
So I'll have to do that. So we'll try this again at some point in the future when I've uh, got some new hardware. Oh, uh, yeah. Bruno uh, Andrade says, number one, clean your connection. Uh, yeah, I've had uh, lots of people out here. People who listen to the stream regularly will be aware of our trials and tribulations. Uh, yeah, and we had people out here too, yesterday, day before yesterday. Who, who, who said there was noise on the line? And how had the people who'd come here before not noticed that? That's what the problem is. They said they'd fixed it. And obviously they hadn't. So anyway, there you go. So my apologies uh, for that. Um, yeah. We'll try it again another time. And here's the thing. Some, some, I saw some people were moaning about Jordan Peterson looking like he was lagging a bit. Um, so that would actually be a lot smoother if it was hardline connected via a, a capture card. So next time we try this, it will be with a hardline capture card. And hey, it'll be smoother. Uh, we just, we'll just have to wait until uh, there's internet we can rely on because a long-form lecture live scoring thing just doesn't work with the internet interrupting it does it because then you come back on you've missed some of what was said and i can't rewind to the point where it was at because i don't know where it was and so on and so forth <sighs> anyway uh so yeah apologies for that makiona said don't get down akira miss superconductor said i just went on another stream also skipping Mike Better says it was incredibly ambitious and fantastic in the duration we got to witness it. And it's only worth doing. Mm. Well, God bless you. shall enlarge Japheth and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant 
lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Criticism is the purpose of criticism is to 
separate the wheat from the chaff. It's not to burn everything to the ground. Right? It's to say, well, we're going to carefully look at this. We're going to carefully differentiate. We're going to keep what's good and we're going to move away from what's bad. But the point of the criticism isn't to identify everything as bad. It's to separate what's good from what's bad so that you can retain what's good and move towards it. Retain what's good and move towards it so that you can retain what's good and move towards it. Retain what's good and move towards it. And to be careless at that is deadly because you're inhabited by the spirit of the Father, right? Insofar as your cultural construction to be disrespectful towards that means to undermine the very structure that makes you not all of what you are, certainly a good portion of what you are. If you pull the foundation out from underneath that, well, what do you have left? You can hardly manage on your own. It's just not possible. You're a cultural creation. You're a cultural creation. Retain what's good and move towards it. Retain what's good and move towards it. So that you can retain what's good and move towards it. 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 So that you can retain what's good and move towards it. Retain what's good and move towards it. So Pam makes this desperate error and is careless about exposing himself to the vulnerability of his father or something like that. He does it without sufficient respect. And the judgment is that not only will he be a slave, but so will all of his descendants. And he's contrasted with the other two sons who, I suppose, are willing to give their father the benefit of the doubt, something like that. And so when they see him in a compromising position, they handle it with respect. On it. And, and maybe that makes them strong. That's what it seems to me. And so I think that's what that story means. It has something to do with respect. Something to do with respect. Something to do with respect. Something, something to do with respect. You know, and the funny thing about having respect for your culture, and I suppose that's partly why I'm doing the biblical stories, is because they're part of my culture. They're part of our culture, perhaps, but they're certainly part of my culture. And it seems to me that it's worthwhile to treat that with respect to see what you can glean from it. And, and not kick it when it's down, let's say. It has something to do with respect. Something to do with respect. Something to do with respect. Something something to do with respect. It has something to do with respect. Something to do with respect. Something to do with respect. Something something to do with respect. So And so that's how the story of Noah ends. The thing, too, is Noah is actually a pretty decent incarnation of the spirit of the Father.
which I suppose is one of the things that make Pam misstep more egregious. I mean, Noah just built an ark and got everybody through the flood, man, you know? It's not so bad, and so maybe the fact that he happened to drink too much wine one day wasn't enough to justify humiliating him. And you know, I don't think it's pushing the limits of symbolic interpretation to note on a daily basis that we're all contained in an ark. You can think about that as the ark that's been bequeathed to us by our forefathers. That's the tremendous infrastructure that we inhabit, that we take for granted, because it works so well. That protects us from things that we can't even imagine, and we don't have to imagine because we're so well protected. is that both the infinite possibility and the constraint are necessary. That's what makes up the genie. It has to be both at the same time. And the idea that, you know, if you find your genie, you can have your wishes. It's right. You have to really want what you're wishing for. You have to make the proper sacrifices to get it. It can't be just some whim. You have to ask for something that you would rather not have. Which is usually wisdom. Somebody asked me about prayer. They asked me if I prayed, and, and I thought, well, it depends on what you mean by that. Exactly. I don't ask God for favors. Or for wishes. Or for wishes. I don't ask God for favors. Or for wishes. I do think that if you sit on the edge of your bed and you ask what kind of thing you're doing to make it work, that you'll get an answer right now. And it won't be the one you want, but it might be the one that if you listen to would set things straight. I don't think that I've ever been in a situation where if something wasn't going right for me and I sat and thought, okay, huh, 
I'm willing to figure out what I'm doing wrong, which is a big thing to think because you never know how much you're doing wrong. It might be something that you really don't want to contend with. But if you clear some space to meditate on that, probability that you'll figure out something that you did that was stupid, that's bending you and twisting you in the wind, you'll get an answer very, very rapidly. I don't ask God for favors or for wishes or for wishes. You know, I don't ask God for favors. how you do that you know i mean it's not like you know how you're manipulating your neurons or something it 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 happens of its own accord in some sense like you can participate with it i guess and you can interfere with it and it seems to take a certain amount of willpower but it still all happens mysteriously behind the scenes and i would say this sort of attitude towards let's say prayer that we're discussing is just an extension of that it's something like well you admit that there's a problem first And then you ask for the minimum necessary intervention, which would be, all right, well, I'd like to move forward on this. Some small amount that someone like me could actually manage, I'd be willing to carry it out. And then you reorient the way you're thinking as a consequence of that, and something usually pops out of the abyss to guide you. Very strange. But it's not really any stranger than the fact that we can think at all. Because the fact that we can think is actually very strange. Strange like the fact that we can dream is strange. And that's strange beyond belief that you can dream. Or that something in you dreams. Which is a much better way of thinking about it because it's not like you're really in control of your dreams. Yo, what's up, citizens of the MAZ? This is your cast and you carry the dumb. We attempted to do the biblical uh, series part three tonight and uh, failed. We failed uh, because the internet fell over. And uh, yeah. So instead, we're playing Epic Records. Live from our spaceship! We do at least still have a spaceship. And you know, we did try. And what else can we do, huh? Transcend the suffering of Spectrum Internet. Every social animal, and even many animals who aren't social, are embedded in a dominance hierarchy. Okay, let's go. The dominance hierarchy has a structure, but we couldn't call it a dominance hierarchy. Dominance hierarchy A, B, C, thousands of them across thousands of years. What's central to all of them? pyramid of value. 
That's right, that's where you go. That's where you go, MAZ. Welcome to the meaning stream. Welcome one and all to the meaning stream tonight. We attempted to do the biblical lectures part three, but we're thwarted. Uh, by the same thing that's been forcing us ever since we moved to Texas, which is Spectrum's internet uh, dropping out every now and again. And, uh, you know, we can handle a dropout in certain sorts of streams, but when you're in the middle of a great big lecture uh, and the internet drops out for like five minutes, it kind of ruins the whole thing. Because you know where you were, etc. So if you've just tuned in and you're wondering where your biblical lecture is, we're going to try it again another time. Uh, when they finally fix the internet. Because it will get fixed. One day it will get fixed. We just have to go through these, these months of suffering. Uh, because that's what life involves. You know? And it's a small price to pay for the glory that we experience every day. The wave. In a way. <clears throat> I've really been trying to make sense of this, eh? Because, well, what the hell's going on? Why am I selling out 3,000 person auditoriums? I use the stage, let's say, as a opportunity in real time to think. I've been thinking, well, if you're surfing, you don't confuse yourself with the wave. It's the wave. real mistake you might be on top of the wave
perverse situation for a pessimist where we need people wealthy and we could make the world a better place simultaneously. They've never been better than this. And it could be so much worse. It's never been better than this. And it could be so much worse. It's never been better than this. And it could be so much worse. Because for most of human history, so much worse is the norm. Hey! says we are here in the MAZ playing at old Jordan Peterson set uh, because we attempted the biblical lectures three earlier but were derailed by uh, the ever ever present spectrum internet issues hurrah shout out to everybody looked in thank you for being here what a beautiful thing you are, M-A-Z. Here's a beautiful song just for you. Tell the truth, or at least don't lie. <laughs> do not do things that you hate. Act so that you can tell the truth about how you act. Pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. If you have to choose, be the one who does things instead of the one who is seen to do things. Pay attention. Assume that the person you are listening to might know something you need to know. Listen to them hard enough so that they will share it with you. Plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationships. Be careful who you share good news with. Be careful who you share bad news with. Make at least one thing better every single place you go. Imagine who you could be and then aim single-mindedly at that. Do not allow yourself to become arrogant or resentful. Try to make one room in your house as beautiful as possible. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, no. not to who someone else is today. Work as hard as you possibly can on at least 
one thing. What thing? To see what happens. If old memories still make you cry, write them down carefully and completely. Maintain your connections with people. Do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or artistic achievement. Treat yourself as if you were someone that you are responsible for helping. Ask someone to do you a small favor so that he or she can ask you to do one in the future. Make friends with people who want the best for you. Do not try to rescue someone who does not want to be rescued. Be very careful about rescuing someone who does. Nothing well done is insignificant. Set your house in perfect order. Criticize the world. Dress like the person you want to be. Be precise in your speech. Stand up straight. Stand up straight. With your shoulders back. Don't avoid something frightening if it stands in your way. But don't do unnecessarily dangerous things. Let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Do not transform your wife into a maid. Do not hide unwanted things in the fog. Notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated. Read something written by someone great. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Don't let bullies get away with it. Write a letter to the government. You see something that needs fixing. I propose a solution. Remember that what you do not yet know is more important than what you already know. Be grateful. In spite of your suffering. Wise men say only fools rush in, but I can't help.
for that were recorded especially for that song and cannot be heard anywhere else. How about that? From the sublime to whatever these are.
requested a tarantula heart's vow. And will to equality shall henceforth be the name for virtue. And against all that has power, we want to raise our clamor. You creatures of equality. The tyrannomania of impotence clamors thus out of you for equality. Your most secret ambitions to be tyrants thus shroud themselves in words of virtue, aggrieved conceit, repressed envy, perhaps the conceit and envy of your fathers, erupt from you as a flame and as the frenzy of revenge. What was silent in the father speaks in the sun. And I often found the sun on the sun. The unveiled secret of the Father. They are like enthusiasts, but it is not the heart that fires them, but revenge. And when they become elegant and cold, it is not the spirit, but envy that makes them elegant and cold. Their jealousy leads them even on the paths of thinkers, and this is the sign of their jealousy. They always go too far. So their weariness must in the end lie down to sleep in the snow. Tarantulas. 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 Out of every one of their complaints sounds revenge. In their praise there is always a sting. And to be a judge seems bliss to them. But thus I counsel you, my friends. Mistrust all in whom the impulse to punish is powerful. They are people of a low sort and stock. The hangman and the bloodhound.
you're going to show yourself, because if you buy, oh, I, I think this is pretty, and you know, somebody comes over and goes, hey, what's up with you? It's kind of hard on your self-esteem, but, but it's a stu- you're stumbling towards the right, you're stumbling towards the kingdom of God. That's what you're stumbling towards when you try to make an aesthetic decision. Make it beautiful. Make it beautiful. Make it beautiful. Make it, make it beautiful. Make it beautiful. It's really hard to make something beautiful. Make it beautiful. As we was wild. Make it beautiful. It's really hard to make something beautiful. Make it beautiful. As we was wild. Beauty is absolutely terrifying to people because beauty, beauty highlights what's ugly. And so if you start to make your room beautiful, then everything around that isn't like that just starts to glow in the worst sense. It's terribly dangerous. That's why people are afraid of beauty, but it's the greatest thing you can do. Beautiful things are beautiful for a reason. That beauty has depth. Like, it's real depth, man. That's what gets you in touch with the transcendent and the divine is beauty. You introduce that into your room. You're playing with fire. People will resist it. Make it beautiful. Make it beautiful. Make it make it beautiful. Make it beautiful. It's really hard to make something beautiful. Make it beautiful. It's really worthwhile. Make it beautiful. It's really hard to make something beautiful. Make it beautiful. It's really worthwhile. I was in this museum a while back. It was full of these paintings from the late Renaissance. There's like a dozen of them in this one room. Every painting on that wall was worth 300 million dollars. Like minimum. You couldn't buy those paintings. Like there was like a dozen of them in there. I thought, wow. Just ask everybody doing their best to make it beautiful. You know, every day we try to make it a little bit more beautiful over here at the MAC. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you. <laughs> yeah! frequently what I'm doing as a therapist is helping people have a life that would work you know and you can parameterize that what do you need how about some friends how about an intimate relationship with someone that you can trust that maybe has a future that'd be good how about a career that puts you in a dominance hierarchy somewhere so at least you've got some possibility of rising some possibility of stabilizing yourself and a schedule and a routine because no one can live without a routine you just forget that if you guys don't have a routine i would recommend like you get one going because you cannot be mentally healthy without a routine you need to pick a time to get up whatever time you want but pick 
one and stick to it because otherwise you dysregulate your circadian rhythms they regulate your mood and eat something in the morning i had lots of clients who've had anxiety disorders i had one client who was literally starving very smart girl there was very little that she liked she kind of tried to subsist on like half a cup of rice a day she came to me and said i have no energy i come home all i want to do is watch the same movie over and over is that weird and i thought well it depends on how hard you work you know it's a little weird but whatever you need to regulate your use of drugs and alcohol most particularly alcohol because that does in a lot of people you need a family like the family you have your parents and all that be nice if you all got along you can work on that that's a good thing to work on and then you know you probably need children at some point and that's life and that's life that's what life is human beings have a human beings have a nature there's things we need transformation that's attendant on an intimate relationship and one of the fundamental purposes of a long-term intimate relationship. Sure. 
make some noise, baby. All oh, them wave emojis in the chat right now. What up, Joshua Tran? You made it. You made it, Joshua Tran. Yo, if you just turned up, you just tuned in. Oh my goodness. You missed the most epic biblical stories live scoring event. Oh my goodness. Yo. Yo! M-A-Z. We will not. Ever. Ever. Be defeated. Meanwhile, victorious 2020 and beyond. We're in here, baby. Labor to be recorded to human civilization. Yeah, that's right. That's right! We did it, baby. We had to do it. It's Cindy Betty's birthday. How could we not? Music is everything. What would be the forms of culture that we would say to be necessary or most, uh, most inclined to foster in the individual that blowing uh, of the flame? I think the most accessible form for most people is music. And music, to me, is the most representational form of art because I think that the world is made out of patterns. Patterns, patterns, patterns. And we perceive some patterns as objects, but fundamentally it's patterns. And what you want is all the patterns of the world to interact harmoniously in something where every element is related intelligibly to every other element. And I think that when your life is in harmony, then you can feel that. When you're dancing to beautiful music, you're acting that out. The music is the music of the spheres, and you're participating in the patterning of your being in accordance with that structure, and that gives you an intimation of, of transcendence. That's the thing that's so lovely about it is even as our society has become more cynical and more self-destructive and more deconstructionist, the power of music has in fact grown. Because it speaks to that eternal harmony. And the reality of that eternal harmony in a way that that mere intellect cannot deny. And I mean, I was always amused. I went to this show, uh, The Ramones, a punk band from New York. It was the loudest concert I'd ever heard by, by a good factor of 10. My ears rang for like three days afterwards. And there were all these like nihilistic, nihilistic punk rockers all crammed into this theater and below me, there was a mosh pit. It was like ants on a frying pan. They were just smashing into each other and throwing people around up above them, and it was quite rough. And they were all having this beautifully trans. 
ironic, and even the lyrics were harsh and nihilistic, but it didn't matter because the music in its rough form was something that united them in the sense of this like patterned beauty and brought them together. And so exposure to music, people die without music. It's like music is everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Make some noise, brothers and sisters. Make some noise. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> hey, yo, thank you for being here. We made it, baby. We made it. We transcended that suffering. We made it beautiful. That's life, baby. That's what life is. Human beings have a nature. There's things we need. Even tarantulas. You know, even tarantulas. But uh, thanks to the 42 Rules for Life uh, and the wave, the realization that uh, you know, it could be so much worse. And I ask God for favors. Oh, wishes. Are the same was good. We move towards it. It's something to do with respect. Music is everything. Baby. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, shouts out. What a, what a great crowd. What a great crowd. Thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you to everyone who supported the wave. Uh, you know, God bless you. Without you, there would be no ting. There would be no ting. If you don't make stuff, there is no stuff. If you don't support stuff, there is no stuff. Welcome to the channel, Richard Young. Welcome to Level 1. Yeah! Shout out to all the members. All those beautiful members out there. God bless you. What are those things here? Shout out to Walking Mall Poet, Diminished 7th. 
Maverick, Nick Johnson, Adam, Walking Mall Poet, Diminished Seven, Jacob Chapper, Chris Champagne, and Sergio Tej. God bless you. Happy birthday, Cindy Bailey. Pissio Kessler's groundbreaking night. I'm blown away. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not. I can't tell. But here's what's cool. Here's what's cool. You go, good, where was the good? It was difficult to find some good earlier. You know, attempted something epic and uh, it was scuppered. But I did introduce some other aspects during this broadcast. Uh, I introduced some different camera things. I introduced some different background stuff. I uh, did a little early, a little rough little forays into VJing. Just a little rough little forays into VJing. Uh, also, a little incremental improvement thing, because I was setting up uh, the system. Uh, this monitor over here is now the monitor with my DJ, uh, with my music stuff in it, and that's actually much better. So that was a little incremental improvement there that's going to help things going forward. You know, so that was nice. And, uh, you know, it's always beautiful to see the resilience of the MAZ out there, you know. Always beautiful. Pissy your cat says, no sarcasm. Hey. Hey. But that's good then. That's good. But, you know, like I always say, baby, like I always say, you know, incremental improvements, all that type of business and... We have no idea what the upper limits of this are. We have no upper limits. Uh, we have no idea of the upper limits. You know, the potential of this forum, the potential of this music, and the potential of this broadcast. is limited only by us and by our imaginations. You know, I once heard, someone once told me that your imagination, you can kind of think as far as, as you can see uh, in the world, you know, in the world. And like, so if you live in a council estate and you look out your window and you just see some brick walls, you know, it's very hard to imagine you could ever escape that, you know, and it's very hard to imagine much more and that sort of thing. Well, now, baby, if I look out my windows, I just see rolling hills for infinity. Rolling hills for infinity, brother, and uh, I do not see an upper limit to this thing. And I'm very excited for what we can do, where we can go, and, uh, you know, <laughs> all of that. Shout out to R.B. Dugan, says, Akira, my wife says that she likes the way you say little. Do I say little? A little, you mean little. One of them. I was saying a couple of different ways. It depends, it depends on the context. It depends on the context. Whether something is little or little. Well, shouts out to you and shouts out to your wife. Thank you all for being here. Uh, this one, I don't know how this will work on the replay. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I never watched the replays. What happens when the internet cuts out? Does it uh, stitch it? Does it just have drops, or does it does it pick up the bits where it dropped out because it gets them delivered after the? Fa I have no idea. But we were down for a while tonight, baby. We were down for a while, and it was, and it was, it was, I got sad, baby. I was sad. Best believe me, I was sad. I was sad, man. I had some little tears in the back of my eyes because I was so excited and uh, I was so hyped to do the biblical, uh, you know, part three thing. And uh, it was going so nicely, you know. And then it collapsed. But then we put, then we, what did we do? We, uh, we got after it. We got after it, and uh, we played an uh, epic set. Now here we 
are ready to get at is go forth and be mighty. Florent P says, spreading the wave in Taiwan. Thanks for these amazing lives every day. Thank you, Florent P. Shouts out to you and shouts out to Taiwan in general. Yeah! What? What happened to my crowd noise? You guys suddenly stopped being noisy. What the heck? What is going on? Anyway, uh, thank you all for being here. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. CT. 7 a.m. CT. And we'll be back tomorrow night. What will we do tomorrow night? What epic adventures will we be going on tomorrow? I just don't, I mean, who knows? Who knows, eh? Who knows? RB Dugan says, yes, dude, you made our night. You know, that's what we try and do. Pinky and the Brain, what were they doing every day? Trying to take over the world. Over here at the MAC, we're just trying to make your day, baby. We're trying to make your day. We're trying to make your night. Uh, trying to get you a little something that's good. And that's consistently good. Reliably good. Even if the internet doesn't work. Uh, you know, no matter what happens, baby. MAC's here. For you. Thank you once again to everyone who supported. If you want to support the wave, I'd say go to meaningwave.com, get some shirts, uh, download the music on Band the Camp, go to Spotify, uh, become a member of the channel. You can make a one-time donation via the link below. You can go to Patreon. All those things exist. But of course, the most important thing you can do is, uh, like our friend out there uh, in Taiwan is doing, is uh, you know let people know, like Florent P, let people know that Meaning Wave exists, and it does. We got a brand new single coming this Friday. That basically means tomorrow night, brand new single. No one's heard it. I haven't played it yet. I might actually not play it in advance. I might let you all hear it for the very first time as it drops. We shall see. And uh, Meaning Wave Masterpieces is, is finished and coming very, very soon. And we'll be playing some songs from that on the streams very soon. Thank you all for being here once again. Happy birthday, Cindy Bailey. Let us get ourselves at an international by five and bid adieu to this epic activity. There it is. Woomph. Three, two, one. Au revoir. Or should I say, but, 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 bye. But, 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 five. Oh, yeah, and uh, Meaning Wave Radio 24-7 is on the second channel if you want to go hang out. Bless up. Oh, yeah, and there's a Discord. Description is in the link of the bio. So much stuff, baby. All right, bless up. Thank you for being here.